Hello and welcome to Film at 11 here on your community radio, KBOO Portland. As you know, KBOO is a volunteer-powered community platform, which means we are funded by you, the listener. Today, Matthew of KBOO's Gremlin Time joins us to discuss the sequel, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, while Jeff Gonsal tackles the once-controversial Where's Papa? But first, here is Jeff on Roman Polanski's The Pianist. The Pianist, from 2002, is the film that Roman Polanski was destined to make. He had wanted to make a film chronicling the occupation of his native Poland by the Nazis, the ghettos, and the eventual extermination of the Jewish population, but he hadn't found the right script or story. Apparently, it wasn't until quite late that he discovered Vladislaw Spilman's memoir from 1946. Fresh in his memory, then, Spilsman recounts in the book his experiences with the horrors of the Nazi invasion and the miracle of his own survival. Spilman was a respected concert pianist in Poland, frequently playing live on the radio when the Nazis rolled into Warsaw. He recalls the creation of the Warsaw Ghetto, a walled city within a city where the Jews could be isolated and in time hustled onto trains to the death camps. Polanski could well relate to this horrendous time, having been corralled himself as a young child along with his mother and father in the Krakow Ghetto. And like Spielman, he escaped and survived. To play the role of Spillman in the film, Polanski had hoped for Joseph Fiennes, but he was committed elsewhere for the stage, and apparently over 1,400 actors were auditioned in London, but Polanski settled on a 29-year-old Adrian Brody after a meeting in Paris, and that would prove to be a fortuitous choice. As the pianist opens, Brody as Spielman is playing during a broadcast on the radio when the studio is rocked by the shelling outside by the invading German army. Brody studied piano for weeks before shooting to approximate the movements of Spillman's hands while the recorded score was played over him. Among his family at home, his mother, father, sisters, and brother, the young Spillman is not the most disturbed or alarmed by the situation, that role belongs to his brother, who becomes more and more outraged by the growing oppression of the German invaders. Young Vladislaw remains hopeful that he will at least be able to continue what he loves and does best, play the piano. Brody, as Spillman, is an unlikely hero, as his view often mirrors our own, as observer to the growing dread and daily atrocities. Some of the incidents were added by Polanski himself that he had observed and were seared into his memory, such as when his own father was slapped across the face by a German officer, for, as a Jew, marked by his obligatory armband with the blue star of David, was walking on the sidewalk instead of the gutter, or when a woman was shot in the head for merely asking a question of an annoyed German soldier. 
Polanski took great pains to remain faithful to Spillman's autobiography, as well as to his own recollections. Once the ghetto is created and Jewish families forced to live within its newly built brick walls, there is an attempt to establish some kind of normality. There's even a cafe where the more bourgeois would frequent and where Spillman is able to find work as the piano player. Now, there are good Jews and bad Jews. The bad going so far as to even aid the Nazis to keep order as they eventually rounded up families into boxcars where they were being relocated, of course, never to return. These collaborators did so in the vain hope that they would be given different treatment, but they were merely the last to go. Spillman watches as his family is separated. Polanski's own mother was the first to go, eventually to meet her death in the concentration camp. Spillman, in a lucky circumstance, is allowed to escape. He wanders back into the streets of the ghetto, now deserted, but littered with clothing, suitcases, and other items that were denied by the Nazis to be taken by their owners. Occasionally, there were also bloodied bodies. One of the memorable images in The Pianist is of Brody walking down these streets, openly weeping in uncontrollable anguish. Spillman is able to secretly contact some of his Gentile friends who connect him to the Polish underground resistance. Because of his stature as a noted artist, he's able to be sheltered in a series of safe houses, sometimes no more than a closet. Escape from po Poland seems impossible, but the hope is that the British and the Americans will end the war. But as the years go on, that end becomes more and more elusive. Even though in hiding, Spillman is able, through his windows, to watch the first Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and then the Polish Uprising itself. But still the Nazis remain in power. As Warsaw is destroyed, his own last shelter is hit with shells from a panzer tank. Escaping, he wanders through the ruined city, eventually finding shelter in the attic of what remains of a house. All he can find to eat is a large can of pickles that he's unable to open. And there, he's discovered by an officer of the German Wehrmacht, Wilm Hosenfeld, and in a tense scene, masterfully acted and directed. The officer, played by Thomas Kretschmann, is amazed to find this creature somehow surviving. He asks Spillman who he is, what he does. When Spillman answers, he's a pianist, Holtzman asks him to play on the piano, which still remains intact in the half-destroyed house. The decrepit Spillman manages to play Chopin's ballad in G minor. There are good Germans and bad Germans, and perhaps aided by the fact that he knows that the end is near for his battalion. The Soviets are moving in from the east. Hosenfeld not only doesn't turn Spillman in, he provides him with food, telling him about the Soviet advance and that it's only a matter of time. 
Even this German officer really did exist, and after Spielmann himself was rescued and the war ended, he tried to find Hosenfeld, but could not. Hosenfeld actually died in 1952, still in Soviet captivity. The Pianist was released in 2002 to worldwide acclaim, winning the Palme d'Or at Cannes, as well as seven Caesar Awards, BAFTAs, etc. Nominated for seven Oscars, it won director and screenplay, and best actor, making the 29-year-old Brody the youngest to ever win that award. The picture itself, however, lost inscrutably to Chicago. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. And don't forget to drop in the Jeff's website, Essentials of Cinema, for even more recommendations. And you are listening to Film 11 here on Community Radio, KBOO Portland. So please consider becoming a member today. Next, Matthew joins us to discuss Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Zeronians, the Animen, Sovereign. The Sovereign? Corners of the universe consider him God. I am Groot. Yes. Yes what? That he's Groot? He said maybe this man downloaded the passkey into the computer on his head. Huh? That could store the passkey. If we find him, we save Rocket. The high evolutionary's coordinates. Put the coordinates in the nav. Wait a minute. Are you kidding me? What he wants is that gutted badger in the med bay, and you're gonna bring it straight to him? It's almost certainly a trap. Trap isn't a trap if you know the trap is trying to trap you. It's a face-off. A face-off is a trap if you're facing off against a guy a thousand times more powerful than you. Do you know who the High Evolutionary is? Yeah, he's dissected my best friend. Second best. The High Evolutionary isn't someone you want to think about messing with. We won't with. think about it when we do it. Playing now on uh, Disney Plus is uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which nicely wraps up the Guardian storyline, which is kind of run parallel to the Avengers storyline and the Spider-Man storyline in uh, the Marvel Universe. So we find the Guardians at the start of this in their residency in this place called Nowhere. And it's a kind of like floating mall in a way. But it's a great little neighborhood and everything looks a little shabby and dirty. But, you know, they're kind of on the outside. And uh, we have this introduction sequence where we are reintroduced to where everybody's at here at the start of the movie. Now... As I said, this is the conclusion of the Guardians of the Galaxy storyline, which actually goes through six films, counting this one. We've got the first two Guardian films, and then we have their crossover with the Avengers in um, Infinity War, where uh, Zamora, one of the Guardians, dies. And then we have Endgame, where uh, Zamora comes back, but not the same Zamora, uh, one from an earlier time. And so she doesn't remember being with the Guardians and she doesn't remember her relationship with Peter. And so at the end of uh, Endgame, uh, she leaves and Thor joins the Guardians. And so now the Guardians appear with Thor in his movie, Love and Thunder. And then that sets them up to them moving into this place called Nowhere, as in know where you're at, know your way around, uh, know what you're doing, that sort of thing. Now, Gunn has established um, a 
technique of really opening a movie strong. And you see how in the first two Guardians films, there's a great big, long, extended fight sequence that's very nice. But here, we have a long, extended sort of uh, introductory sequence where we're seeing them in their life there in uh, Nowhere and the other people that live there. Um, we get a nice introduction instead of a big fight scene. But, of course, the fight scene's kind of put off after we've established uh, where everybody is at at this time in their life. And we find Peter really depressed over his breakup with or over Zamora leaving him. And he's just drinking all the time and he's not even listening to his music, whereas Rocket is listening to the music. And the music is kind of sparking memories of his early life when he, as a young raccoon, was genetically altered by uh, the villain in the piece, the high evolutionary. And he became more sentient and more intelligent. And we became the Rocket character that we know now. And he becomes the center of the film. So just as we kind of get everybody's introduced and where they're at and everything, um, this character, Adam Warlock, bursts into the place and tries to kidnap Rocket. But he's like fought off and he disappears. And so as they're trying to patch Rocket up, they find out that the high evolutionaries put a sort of copyright on his uh, biology and they can't get in and uh, repair him or, or fix him up. So this leads to them trying to track down the information that locks them out of um Rocket's body, and we get a sort of caper movie uh, format here where they got to break into the corporation that the uh, high evolutionary is the head of and find the code and save their friend. But to do that, they have to bring Zamora back in. So now here, Peter has to confront Zamora for a very logical reason. And then the story moves along until they are finally... Uh, within the clutches of the high evolutionary. And it's not a trap, it's a face-off. Your friend wants to advantage. I learned my lessons. I aimed some small part of my mental capacity back in my own direction. And now gravity itself serves my whims. You must find Counter-Earth familiar. Counter-Earth? I visited your planet many years ago. Earth hasn't been my planet in a long time. Your people had Wonderful spirit. Mm. The art and music and literature were some of the finest in the universe. Earth would be a fabulous place were it not for the ignorance and bigotry. Okay. It inspired me to create Counter-Earth. I don't care. All of the good and none of the bad. I don't need another speech by some impotent whack job whose mother didn't love him rationalizing why he needs to conquer the universe. I'm not trying to conquer the universe. I'm perfecting it. I'm talking about Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which is now uh, streaming on Disney uh, Plus. This is by James Gunn, and it uh, wraps up the uh, Guardian story. And besides all the action and comedy and the really great look of the whole thing, there's some solid science fiction in the foundation of this story. The high evolutionary is obsessed with finding perfection. But he just doesn't know enough that you, you can't find perfection in this infinite universe of ours. And opposed to Peter, who has have to realize that this woman he's totally in love with isn't interested in him, and he has to accommodate that. And so he can, Peter can accommodate new things that come on and move on from that. Whereas the high evolutionary, he's trying to fit the facts to his own theory. And you know in science that if the theory doesn't fit fit the facts, 
the theory is wrong. I miss you so much. And maybe, maybe if you, if you open yourself up to it, there's a possibility. I don't think so, Quinn. Quill. Quill. I don't think so. Well, what I'm trying to say is... Peter, you know this is an open line, right? What? We're listening to everything you're saying. And it is painful. And you're just telling me now? We were hoping it would stop on its own. But I switched it over to private. What color button did you push? Blue, for the blue suit. Oh, no. Blue is the open line for everyone. Orange is for blue. What? Black is for orange. Yellow is for green. Green is for red. And red is for yellow. No, yellow is for yellow. Green is for red. Red is for green. I don't think so. Try it then. Hello! You were right. And as with all of these Marvel films, the movie's not over once the villain has been bested or locked up or whatever that they do in the film. There is always, you know, what happens with the characters. And the movie spends time to sort of establish where the character will go after the movie ends. And they, they do this very well in the Marvel films. I really like the point that's brought out that Drax, who's considered Drax the Destroyer, um, uh, Mantis points out to him that, no, you're not Drax the Destroyer, you're Drax the Dad. And make no mistake, this is a four-handkerchief movie. It's amazing how with all the action and the jokes and stuff that are going on, uh, that there is still some very nice sentimental parts that uh, show up in the film when someone like sacrifices himself or is redeems himself by saving somebody. And uh, Gunn is, works these elements into this big space opera adventure uh, masterfully. We have all the characters and we never lose uh, any of the threads as the story is evolving. I thought also the way that they could establish the different locations, the, the, the nowhere, the corporation, the, the new earth place, and then, you know, finally the, the final battles that happen. Now, as I say, this is a four-handkerchief movie. I think the line, kill them all, appears in this. And just as a total spoiler, they save all the children as well as all the animals. So that kind of gives you an idea of where this movie comes from. Also, I want to talk about James Gunn just to, to wrap up here. So this is his final movie with the uh, Marvel studio. And he is going over to Warner Brothers where he is going to head up the DC movies that are going to be coming out. And this movie kind of gives us an idea of what to expect from that. Um, the way that you really care about the characters, the way they, uh, he understands their comic book origins. They don't try and dismiss it. They try to develop some of those stories and present them more in the film. Uh, this is shown by how they use the character Howard the Duck which is an odd character in comic books. He's a transitional character that appeared in like the 1970s in the Adam Warlock series as a character from another dimension. So it helped set up that multiverse idea in Marvel. And also it was a sort of jab at the time 
for the comic book fans really loved it because it was kind of a jab at the Carl Barks, uh, Donald Duck uh, Disney comics. And so we hear that sort of Donald Duck type character showing up in the Marvel Universe. And it got really popular. That The character even got his own book for a while. And somebody even wanted to make a movie out of it at some point. And then I thought the biggest influence was that it brought about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Samurai Rabbit and a bunch of other anamorphic characters that have, been, that have uh, had a very long run in the comics and in cartoons. So it's very nice that they keep uh, Howard the Duck in the background, and that shows that he Gunn understands the comics. And so we can't wait to see uh, what he's going to do over at uh, DC. And from some uh, things that have been released, we see that they're going to be kind of picking up on uh, what the DC animated uh, films have been like. And so it should be something to look forward to. But until then, we've got Guardians of the Galaxy 3. You can go back and watch the other five films, the two uh, Guardian films and the three uh, crossover films, and the Christmas special as well. So this movie is a nice wrap-up of past films, but it's also a kind of foretelling of what the Gunn's going to be doing in his future projects for DC. But for right now, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is well worth it. Thanks, Matthew. Now here's Jeff again, but this time talking about the once-controversial Where's Papa from 1970. For a long time now, Blazing Saddles has taken the prize as the best comedy that could not be made today. Or, if it was made, it would have to go through a gauntlet of opinion by the self-appointed guardians of the easily offended, usually other than themselves, along racial, sexual, or some other line. Only the most intrepid would even bother anymore. At least it's the comedians of now and then who are leading the charge against the madness. It's hard to believe that a decade, 50 years ago, would look more progressive than the one we're living in. But such were the 70s, when Mel Brooks had a relatively easy time making Blazing Saddles, as did his best friend and comic compadre, Carl Reiner, when he made his third film, Where's Papa, in 1970. Where's Papa? The story of Gordon Hockheiser a young man torn between his love for mother and the urge to kill her. Sid, you have ten minutes. If you're not here by then, I'm throwing her out the window. You can torture her and beat her. In Where's Papa? George Siegel is Gordon Hockheiser, a criminal defense attorney in New York. Gordon has mother issues in that she lives with him in his apartment in the Upper West Side. The issue is that she's 87 and senile, and with her eccentric behavior, has ruined every attempt that George has made to have anything like a love life. Gordon promised his father on his deathbed that he would not put her in a rest home, dooming Gordon to be her caregiver until death, an event that Gordon wouldn't mind hastening, as indicated by the opening scene where he confronts her in a full gorilla suit, hoping to scare her to death. Gordon, you almost scared me to death. <laughs> almost doesn't count. But she is undeterred by all of this, and she teeters continually toward dementia, often asking, 
Where's Papa? To Gordon's reply, still dead. Desperate to find a caregiver who will actually stay and give some relief in watching his mother, Gordon eventually finds Louise, a young and beautiful nurse, played by Trish Vanderveer, soon to be George C. Scott's wife, by the way, in her first featured role. How many people do you have here? 73, I don't know, maybe, maybe 72. I don't know, I didn't check all the rooms yet. Sometimes they go in the middle of the night and I don't get a chance to find out about it till the morning. Louise is desperate for the job as well, considering that her previous patients had a peculiar habit of dying in her care. Well, that's the perfect match, Gordon figures. As a bonus, Gordon is immediately smitten with Louise, and the feeling is mutual. On their first meeting at the apartment, Mrs. Hockheiser, true to comic form, manages to ruin this first dinner and perhaps sabotage any further employment for Louise. Out of frustration, Gordon rings up his brother Sidney, who lives on the Upper East Side, to come and get their mother, or he will surely kill her. Afraid that he might be serious this time, and despite the fact that he has a wife and family of his own, Sidney, played hilariously by Ron Lieben, agrees to dash across Central Park to his brother's apartment. Unfortunately, he has a history of being mugged while trying to do this, and this time the usual muggers are waiting to oblige. And so, the question of what to do about Mom makes up the core of the plot for Where's Papa? The kind of movie that you either like or what's wrong with you? Oh, and I suppose I should mention that the Mrs. Hawkeiser is played to perfection by Ruth Gordon, who at the age of 74 was making a late career name for herself between her roles in Rosemary's Baby and Harold and Maude. Director Reiner seemed to have a knack for casting the septuagenarian set. He would do wonders for George Burns' career in Oh God, Seven Years Later. And Miss Gordon clearly got the memo for Where's Papa. Like the rest of the cast, she understood the tone for this kind of comedy. And as I alluded to earlier, getting everybody on board is essential for an off-center piece like this. A comedy that includes jokes about age, race, dementia, elder abuse, even rape, and keeping them truly funny. Grounded in the comedy of human foibles. Never mean-spirited, never juvenile. It's a fine line, to be sure, and one that is rarely tread these days. It's almost as if the more truth there is in jokes on sensitive subjects, like race and sexual proclivities, the more risky it is to make them. While witless attempts at hilarity involving the grossest aspects of bodily functions get a pass, the dumber, the safer. Not just in adolescent comedies, but in supposedly more adult fare. Films like Babylon come to mind. So let us celebrate the glorious 70s and that brief time when the gates really seemed to be kicked open and satire was at a rarefied high with the likes of Monty Python, Mel Brooks, and Carl Reiner's Where's Papa? This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again, Jeff. And again, thank you for listening to Community Radio, KBO Portland. 
Film at 11 will be back next Friday, so until then, keep watching the screens.